Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 5 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this series, we are discussing the events of World War I that led to the partition of the Ottoman Empire. This is Episode 527, Armistice and Partition. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Germany's spring offensive, which began in March 1918, has run out of steam and the Allies respond with a vicious counterattack. Hundreds of thousands of American troops arrive in Europe, bringing a significant advantage and the Spanish flu to the Allies. In the Middle East, the Ottomans have lost Damascus and Amman and fall back to Homs. Prince Faisal learns the harsh truth of the Sykes-Picot Agreement when General Allenby informs him Syria will go to the French. And with that, let's begin our discussion of the end of World War I. Bulgaria We discussed Bulgaria's entry into the war back in episode 15 of this series. At that time, both sides thought Bulgaria would be a huge game-changer for the Central Powers. They started off strong and within a few months had captured most of neighboring Macedonia. However, things were looking different by September 1918. After three long years of war, Bulgaria's economy was ruined and thousands of Bulgarians were dead. And now, Bulgaria was on the defensive, desperately trying to hold on to their occupied territory in Macedonia. On September 15, 1918, a combined force of French, British, Italian, Serbian, and Greek troops attacked Bulgarian forces occupying the city of Dobropol in Macedonia just north of the Greek border. After opening with heavy artillery shelling on Bulgarian defenses, Allied infantry moved in. They used flamethrowers to flush out the entrenched Bulgarian soldiers. The Bulgarian military was in a difficult spot. Troop morale was low, Their equipment was in poor condition, and they were outnumbered three to one. Many of the Bulgarian soldiers simply abandoned their positions rather than face a horrible death in the trenches. The remaining Bulgarian forces held on as best they could, but eventually had to retreat deeper into Macedonia. The Allies followed after them, freeing several occupied Macedonian cities along the way. With this breakthrough in the Balkans, Allied forces were able to push all the way through to the western regions of Bulgaria. By September 24, 1918, the Bulgarian army was in full retreat and the country was in tatters. Some parts of the army mutinied, other parts deserted, and some parts of the country were in open rebellion. It was over for Bulgaria. The government begged for an armistice, but the French commander of the Allied forces refused to listen. He continued the push into Bulgaria, getting closer to the capital of Sofia. Four days later, Bulgaria again requested an armistice, and this time, 
the Allies agreed. Just to clarify, an armistice is simply a ceasefire or a truce. It's meant to give the two sides time to negotiate a peace agreement. In most cases, the time between an armistice and a peace treaty can take several months or even years. But not this time. Bulgaria signed the peace treaty within two days accepting all ally terms. This started a chain reaction that ultimately led to the end of the war. Elsewhere in Europe, the Allies were steadily pushing the Germans back. By mid-September, the Allies had pushed the German lines in Belgium back several miles. And on September 27, 1918, a combined American and Australian assault finally broke through the vaunted Hindenburg Line. Germany's leadership knew it was over. With Bulgaria out of the war, Austria-Hungary was wide open to Allied attack. From there, it was just a matter of time before Germany was fighting on two fronts again. Germany's top military leaders advised Kaiser Wilhelm II that it was time to seek an armistice and bring this terrible war to an end. It was over, they told him. Germany could not win this war. German ports were blockaded. The country was facing starvation, and parts of its military had mutinied. Germany reached out to the United States, knowing they would offer more generous terms than the British or the French. But President Woodrow Wilson refused to negotiate with either the Kaiser or Germany's military. Kaiser Wilhelm II tried to delay the inevitable, hoping to hold on to some of his imperial power. But the rest of the government was not having it. The German chancellor simply announced the Kaiser was no longer in power, orchestrating a bloodless coup. The Ottoman Empire Having taken Damascus, the combined forces of the British military and the Arab revolt continued to roll through Syria. As they pursued the retreating Ottomans north, more and more of Syria fell under British control. The British took Tripoli on October 9th. The Arabs took Homs on October 16th. The British took Hama on October 21st. The Arabs took Aleppo on October 25th. The Ottoman Empire, if it could still be called an empire, had lost the Hejaz, Palestine, Transjordan, Lebanon, Mesopotamia, and most of Syria. With the British and their Arab allies closing in on Anatolia, the Ottoman government began falling apart. Throughout the entire war, Enver Pasha, the Ottoman minister of war, had fed false information to the rest of the government. He led the Ottoman Sultan and the Parliament to believe that everything was going fine and that victory was soon to come. He did not tell them about the Allied superiority in numbers and military technology. He did not tell them how the German officers used Ottoman soldiers like cannon fodder. He did not tell them how the Ottomans lost nearly every engagement against the British and the Russians. 
But now the truth was clear. The Ottoman Empire was on the losing side of this war and the end was near. And now that Bulgaria was occupied by the Allies, the Ottomans were cut off from Germany, whom they depended on for supplies and weapons. Before long, rumors began filtering in that Germany was trying to set up a meeting with President Wilson. This was the final signal that it was all over. On October 8, 1918, the Young Turks resigned from the cabinet. The three Pashas, Enver, Talat, and Jamal, all resigned hoping this might convince the Allies to go easier on the Ottomans during peace negotiations. The three Pashas then fled the country knowing they could be tried for war crimes. For about a week, there was no one to run the government. Sultan Mehmed VI was the nominal head of state and the ruler of the Ottoman Empire. But thanks to the young Turks, he was just a figurehead with no real power. He finally appointed retired General Ahmed Izzet Pasha to form a new government and work out a deal with the Allies. The Ottomans sent feelers out to both the British and the Americans about an armistice. The United States had never officially declared war on the Ottoman Empire and did not know what to do. They asked the British for guidance but got no response. The British definitely wanted to end hostilities. They did not relish a grueling and brutal fight in the heart of Anatolia. But they did not want President Wilson's naive ideas about self-determination to hinder their imperial ambitions. The British had their own agenda for the Ottoman Empire and the Middle East, and they intended to see it through. President Wilson had made it clear he did not want to take land away from the defeated nations and give it to the victors. But this was clearly what British Prime Minister Lloyd George and many French politicians wanted. So when the Ottomans asked for peace, the British sidelined the Americans and took the lead in the negotiations. Two years earlier, during the siege of Kut in Mesopotamia, the Ottomans had captured British General Charles Townsend. We discussed this in episode 17 of this series. As a sign of good faith, the Ottomans sent General Townsend back to the British hoping to kick-start the armistice negotiations. The two sides met aboard a British warship in the Bay of Mudros by the Greek island of Lemnos in the Aegean Sea. Neither side knew how eager the other was for a deal. The British wanted to end this war as quickly as possible and keep the Americans out of the picture. Sultan Mehmed VI also wanted to end hostilities and had instructed his representatives to agree to all British demands. He did not know that all he had to do was threaten to go to the Americans and the British would have caved. As it was, the two sides negotiated for four days before finally coming to an agreement. And on October 30th, 1918, 
Ahmed Izzet Pasha signed the armistice, effectively ending the war for the Ottoman Empire. The terms of the armistice were as follows. The Ottomans must open the Dardanelles Straits to the Allied fleet. The Ottomans must surrender their navy to the British or the French. All Ottoman soldiers must stand down and disarm. The Ottomans had to give the Allies full access to their entire communication and railroad network. The Ottomans had to expel all German and Austrian personnel. The Ottomans had to turn over all Allied prisoners of war. Eleven days after the Ottomans signed their armistice, Germany signed one as well. And with that, the second deadliest war humankind had ever known came to an end. The occupation of Istanbul began on November 13, 1918. Allied ships sailed through the Straits of Dardanelles and thousands of Allied troops marched into the city. The Christians of Istanbul cheered the conquering soldiers as British, French, and Italian flags were hoisted everywhere. The Muslims of Istanbul, humiliated and angry at the display, mostly stayed indoors. They focused their rage on the young Turks who had dragged them into this war that no one wanted. The young Turks, for all their talk of modernizing and westernizing the empire, had done nothing but bring it to ruin. Most of the young Turk politicians claimed innocence, stating they were misled by their leadership, primarily in Verpasha. They said that if they had known the truth about how the war was going, they would have brought it to an earlier end and negotiated a more favorable truce. And now that it was all over, the three Pashas were gone, having fled to Germany. The Peace Conferences With the fighting finally coming to an end, it was time for the world to talk about peace. In January 1919, the victors of the war met in Paris for a series of discussions known as the Paris Peace Conference. None of the defeated central powers were invited and none of them attended. This was all about the winners making sure they got what they wanted from the losers. Each of the former allies had their own agendas. The British wanted to protect and expand its global empire and limit French influence in the Middle East. The French wanted to weaken Germany as much as possible and get guarantees of protection from the British and the Americans. The United States wanted to push President Wilson's 14 points. And Italy wanted to make sure they got something, anything for their sacrifice in the war. The biggest point of contention between Britain and France was what to do with Syria. British Prime Minister Lloyd George was an imperialist and he wanted to acquire as much territory as possible. He said the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which promised Syria to France, was outdated and irrelevant. In some respects, he had a point. The agreement had been made before major action in the Middle East had begun. 
Since then, Great Britain had done most of the fighting, having conquered Mesopotamia, Palestine, Transjordan, and Syria from the Ottomans. But there were other reasons the British wanted to forget about Sykes-Picot. First, the British wanted to secure Egypt and their control over the Suez Canal. In order to do that, they needed Palestine. Second, the British also wanted Mosul, which was between Syria and Mesopotamia. Large oil deposits had recently been discovered there, and they suspected this was just the tip of the iceberg. Lloyd George also argued that the British had promised Syria to their Arab allies, and they couldn't turn their backs on them. As noble as this sounded, everyone knew that any nation Prince Faisal ruled would ultimately be a British puppet. France saw things differently. They also disagreed with Sykes-Picot, but for different reasons. They felt their diplomat, François-Georges Picot, had done a terrible job and had not secured enough for France. The French public was strongly in favor of annexing Lebanon and Syria and did not want to hear anything about so-called Arab independence. And the French government did not want to work with Prince Faisal, whom they knew was loyal to the British. The French considered Syria to be the entire Levant, which included Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine. They argued that the people living in these regions were not true Arabs. Instead, they were a mixture of various ethnicities who just happened to speak Arabic. But the French did not have much room to negotiate. France needed to stay on good terms with the British because they needed British protection. France wanted Germany weakened to the point they were no longer a threat. But Britain opposed weakening Germany too much as they were concerned about communist Russia gaining influence. Another problem the French had was that their prime minister, George Clemenceau, was against French imperialism. He believed foreign colonies sapped French wealth and energy and led to endless foreign wars. Clemenceau would have been happy to let the British take the entire Middle East. However, the political reality in France would not allow that. By the end of the Paris peace conferences, most of these issues had not yet been resolved. However, the attendees had come to three broad conclusions. First, Germany had to accept full responsibility for the war. Germany had to demilitarize and pay reparations to the victors. The exact details of these terms would take time to hammer out, but they would eventually lead to Germany signing a peace treaty in Versailles, France in June 1919. The second conclusion concerned the future of the territories of the defeated powers. For now, they would all be put under Allied mandates until peace deals were worked out with the Ottomans and the Austrians. 
The third and final major outcome from the Paris Peace Conferences was the establishment of a League of Nations headquartered in Geneva, Switzerland. This was one of the few ideas from Wilson's 14 points that the other allies agreed with. Everyone hoped this League of Nations would help to prevent future conflicts. For all of his moral posturing, Woodrow Wilson's 14 points had little impact on the peace talks. President Wilson was not a good negotiator and his overbearing demeanor did not win him any friends. Besides, the imperialist elements within the British and French governments did not want to hear about self-determination for local populations. After the peace conferences were over, Woodrow Wilson left Paris and returned to the United States in 1919. He was soon embroiled in fierce debates with his political opponents over the country's acceptance of the Treaty of Versailles and there was strong opposition to the United States joining the League of Nations. Wilson embarked on a grueling nationwide tour to drum up support for the League of Nations, which was mostly his idea. He soon came down with a sickness, which many now believe was Spanish flu, perhaps contracted while he was in Europe. The burden of the nationwide tour plus the flu, pushed his body to the limit. In October 1919, President Wilson suffered a stroke, leaving the left side of his body completely paralyzed. The president suspended his tour and returned to Washington, D.C., where his condition was kept hidden throughout the remainder of his second term. With Woodrow Wilson incapacitated, the country grew disillusioned with the war. Most Americans did not want to get involved in any more international entanglements. The United States never ratified the Treaty of Versailles and never joined the League of Nations, even though it was the idea of an American president. The Treaty of Sevres While the Treaty of Versailles was between the Allies and Germany, the Treaty of Sevres was between the Allies and the Ottoman Empire. The Treaty of Sevres, signed in August 1920, formally ended all hostilities between the Allied powers and the Ottoman Empire. It also laid hefty demands at the foot of the Ottomans. Among other things, the treaty forced the Ottomans to turn over control of their finances to the Allies. The Ottomans were limited to maintaining a small military never to exceed 50,000 soldiers, and they were prohibited from having an air force. And they also had to arrest those responsible for the Armenian massacre and turn them over to the Allies. The treaty also carved up the Ottoman Empire. Not just the Middle East, but also Anatolia, the traditional homeland of the Turkish people. Anatolia was divided into several spheres of influence which were really allied zones of occupation. Greece got Smyrna in western Turkey and Thrace, the European side of Istanbul. 
Eastern Turkey was joined with Russian Armenia. France took over the southern portion of Turkey bordering Syria. Italy got large sections of southern and central Turkey. The Dardanelles were to be put under international jurisdiction. Britain kept the island of Cyprus. And finally, a new Kurdish state was to be carved out of eastern Turkey between Armenia and Persia. The only part of Turkey that remained under direct Ottoman control was the northern section bordering the Black Sea. The lands outside of Anatolia were placed under various Allied mandates. In theory, the Allies were to govern these territories until they were ready for self-rule. Lloyd George and George Clemenceau had finally come to an agreement regarding Mosul, Syria, and Palestine. Great Britain received a mandate over Mesopotamia, which included the oil-rich region of Mosul, down to Basra on the Persian Gulf. Britain also got a mandate over Palestine, allowing them to continue fulfilling the terms of the Balfour Declaration. France received mandates over Syria and Lebanon. France made it clear they had no intention of honoring Britain's promises to the Arabs and would rule Syria as they saw fit. Finally, Sharif Hussein was given the strip of land running along the Arabian Red Sea coast, starting from the Gulf of Aqaba and ending near the border of Yemen. This land included the holy cities of Mecca and Medina and was called the Kingdom of Hejaz. Trouble on the Horizon Of course, the war to end all wars did not end all wars. If anything, these treaties, agreements, and mandates led to many more wars. The Turkish people were angry about the terms of the peace treaty. Not only had the lands of the Middle East been taken away, even Anatolia was divided up and occupied by various foreign powers. The Ottoman ruler, Mehmed VI, still held the title of caliph and sultan. But he was essentially a mouthpiece for the British who were using him to keep the Turks in check. Many Turkish military officers knew this and refused to obey the sultan's orders to disarm. One of these officers was General Mustafa Kemal Pasha. The sultan had originally ordered the general to rein in these holdout elements of the military. But now it seemed General Mustafa was actually organizing them to resist the occupation. Down in Syria, Prince Faisal was still upset and felt betrayed by the British. The British had hoped Faisal and the French would find some sort of working relationship. But that was not going to happen since neither party wanted to work with the other. Faisal hated the French, and the French knew Faisal was in Britain's pocket. In Mesopotamia, a rebellion was starting to brew where the British had miscalculated local sentiment. 
The Arabs in this region known as Al-Iraq had resented Ottoman rule. But at least the Ottomans were Muslim. The British were not. The Sunnis and the Shiites of Al-Iraq were willing to put aside their differences to focus on their common enemy. Things were not going well in the kingdom of Hejaz either. Like his son Faisal, Sharif Hussein was angry about the British betrayal and losing Syria to the French. He was even more upset about British plans to turn Palestine into a Jewish colony. Sharif Hussein refused to sign the Treaty of Versailles, which would have confirmed his agreement with the Balfour Declaration. Unlike his son Prince Faisal, he could not bring himself to sign off on a Jewish takeover of Jerusalem. But Sharif Hussein had bigger, more immediate problems than Palestine. His new kingdom was being threatened by his rival, Abdul Aziz ibn Saud, and his puritanical ideologies. For the past several years, Great Britain had kept the Saudi forces at bay. After all, Abdul Aziz was their client also. But since Sharif Hussein refused to acknowledge the Balfour Declaration, Lloyd George was starting to look at the Saudis as a more agreeable partner to work with. And without British support, Sharif Hussein had no chance of defending his kingdom against Ibn Saud. Finally, the British were learning the truth about Muslim-Jewish relations in Palestine. Clashes between the two groups were becoming more frequent as more Jewish colonists continued to arrive from Europe. The European Jews had more money, better technology, and more sophistication than the agrarian Palestinians. They also had the backing of the British who, despite their claims to fairness, couldn't see how displacing one group of people for another group of people would cause problems. The only advantage the Palestinians had were their numbers. At the current rate, it was unlikely Jewish immigrants would ever outnumber the Palestinians. Back in Germany, the people were angry. Their once proud nation was broken. Their government was in debt, and their leaders were clueless. Germany was now responsible for paying billions of dollars in war reparations. To pay these reparations, the German government took out loans from foreign banks, many of which were controlled by Jewish families. Thousands of Germans were attracted to the fiery speeches of a young man named Adolf Hitler, leader of the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Hitler blamed Germany's troubles on the communists, the capitalists, and above all, the Jews. This concludes our series on World War I and the partitioning of the Ottoman Empire. But the story is not over yet. Inshallah, in the next season of the Islamic History Podcast, we will look at those lands that were carved out of the Ottoman Empire. Together, we will discover the origins of the following nations. The Republic of Turkey, 
the Syrian Arab Republic, the Republic of Lebanon, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, the Republic of Iraq, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and finally, the State of Israel. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash WWI to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash islamichistory. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of these premium shows. Or, to make a one-time donation, visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate. Special thanks to Brother Zulfi Kasiroj for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. In this series, we are going over the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, known to the West as Saladin. In today's episode, we'll be discussing Salahuddin's first attempts to invade Palestine. But before we get into that, let's begin with a recap of where we are so far. In the wake of Nuruddin's death, Syria splits between various competing factions. Nuruddin's nephew, Saifuddin Ghazi, takes Mosul and northern Syria. Meanwhile, the eunuch, Gumushtagin, acting on behalf of Nuruddin's son, Saleh, takes over Aleppo. Ibn al-Muqaddam, the new ruler of Damascus, decides to ally with Salahuddin and hands over control of the city. Salahuddin eventually forces Saifuddin, Gumushtagin, and Saleh to recognize his rule over Damascus and southern Syria. And with that, let's take a look at Salahuddin's first invasion of Palestine. King Baldwin IV As discussed in episode 14, King Amalric of Jerusalem died a few months after Nuruddin in 1174. The crown passed on to his son, Baldwin IV, a sickly boy of 13 years old. 
Baldwin IV was born in 1161 to Amalric and his wife Agnes of Courtenay, the daughter of Jocelyn II, former Count of Edessa. Nuruddin's father, Imaduddin Zengi, captured Edessa, the capital of the county of Edessa, in 1144. Nuruddin allowed Jocelyn II to continue ruling over the rest of the county as his vassal. A few months later, Jocelyn II attempted to betray Nuruddin for which he was blinded and thrown into prison. Agnes's mother eventually sold the rest of Edessa to the Byzantines. But the Byzantines were too far away and Edessa was eventually overrun by Turkish warlords. All of this was covered in episode 9 of this series. Amalric married Agnes in 1157 while his brother, Baldwin III, was king of Jerusalem. When Baldwin III died in 1162, Amalric became the king and his marriage came under scrutiny. Since Agnes's father died in Nuruddin's prison and she owned no lands, the union was not considered very practical. And many people in the kingdom thought Agnes would use her position to rebuild her family's wealth. Agnes and Amalric were forced to divorce on the flimsy excuse that they were third cousins and too closely related. In 